This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. My name is Y, and I can see from the schedule that I'm due to preach on this Sunday, which is a topical sermon. And so the weeks prior, I was thinking, okay, you know, what topic am I going to address? And then I see in uh, one of the websites that I look at uh, on technology, and a quote that struck me, which said, uh, if we invent a machine, the first thing we are going to do after we make a profit out of it is to use it to watch porn. So that uh, struck me, and the writer was talking about what the next frontier of uh, pornography is going to be at, and it is going to be in virtual reality. So that's the next thing that's coming. And so it just uh, struck me that we need to address this whole issue of technology from the pulpit. And so the title of today's sermon, you know, are you, are you married? Are you married to your smartphone? Uh, I think it's something that we can all relate to. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we think uh, about this topic from his word. Uh, Father, thank you that we have the opportunity to discuss this. Thank you for all the people who have thought hard and uh, wrote down uh, observations. Uh, but Father, ultimately, please help us to learn from your word how we should be good stewards of technology. Uh, we thank you and we praise you. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can refer to your bulletin and you can see that there are uh, three points. And the first point that we want to make is that it is God's technology. Technology is created by God. It is not created by the devil. It is not created by our Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. The devil simply abuses what God has created. Uh, the tech people, they simply discover or invent. You know, They just make use and reorder raw materials. They make use of physical laws and uh, you know, principles that God has built into the universe. You know, things like electricity, radio waves, magnetism. It is God who creates technology. God is also the one who creates in the sense that He is the one who made the human minds, who gave these humans the, the gifts, the abilities to discover, to invent you know, things like the wheel, bridges, the internet, stuff like that. So God is the one who is the creator of technology. And it is entrusted to humanity. God creates and God has entrusted it to us so that we can faithfully use it to fulfill His purposes. What purpose are we talking about? Well, all the way back in Genesis 1, after God created uh, man and woman in His image, he gave them this command, right? be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now you're going to need technology to fill the earth and subdue it. You're going to need to have technology to cut down trees, to build bridges, you know, to make houses. You're going to need technology to accomplish God's commands. And so this is why God has created technology. He has entrusted it to us so that we can fulfill His purpose. So the main application from this is that we have 
technology. We have this technology in our hands, not fundamentally because of Samsung or Apple. Right? We have technology in our hands, not because we have paid you know, $500 for our handphones. No, as Christians, you must recognize that we have it as a good gift from our Heavenly Father. And so the more we see and appreciate that truth, that we have it as a good gift from God, the more we'll be able to use it in a way that, is, uh, that expresses thanksgiving, uh, use it in a way that honors the one who has lovingly entrusted it to our hands. I hope you see the, uh, the point of this. I mean, so often when we look at our phones, we may marvel at the, you know, the, the engineers, the, the, the companies that produce these things, but ultimately it comes from God, and God who has a purpose and who has given us uh, guidelines for how to use these things. So recognize that it is from God. Recognize that it is not because I paid for it. And so I can use it you know, the way I want to, or use it unthinkingly as the world around, around me uses it. So tech is a good gift, but because we live in a fallen world, because we are sinful human beings, technology is abused. Uh, and so the second point, there is both opportunity and risk. And this is a point that uh, Tim Chalice makes. Now, I should say that um, I'm not uh, tech-savvy, you know, like Andrew, I'm not. Uh, and all these things I've learned about technology, um, the research I've done have come from uh, three people, uh, Tim Chalice, David Murray, and Tony Ranke. Okay, so I will uh, send an email uh, about the websites that I've gone to so that you can, you know, um, look at these things in greater detail should you want to. Okay, but this, this point about there being both opportunity and risk comes from Tim Chalice in his book, uh, The Next Story. Every technology brings with it both risk and opportunity. Every technology solves some problems while also introducing new ones. Okay, so I think that's, that's an obvious point. Uh, what is less obvious and what many of us fail to realize is that when a new technology comes out, we will be drawn to it, we will be attracted by its benefits, by, by the opportunities that it promises, but rarely do we pause to consider the potential risks. Like when we signed up for Facebook or Instagram, right, the things that struck us were the opportunities you know, to connect with friends, connect with people with uh, same interests. You know, for me, it was, okay, I can see what my students are up to. Um, you, know, you can watch cute cat videos. You know, opportunities that drew us in. But before we sign up, did we stop and think? What were some of the potential risks? And the reality is that the benefits, they show themselves. I mean, that's what they advertise about this new tech, this new app. These are the opportunities. These are the benefits they do not tell us about the risks. The risks are only unveiled over time and only as we stop and think and observe. Okay, so there's opportunity and risks. I want to think about some of the risks with you, some of the risks that people have observed that over time, uh, the risks that our digital technology have given us. So the first thing is that our concentration our concentration has been affected. 
Now, because we spend so many more hours now in this digital age, consuming digital media, right? Some people say on average we spend six hours a day on, uh, on our screens. Our attention span has fallen from 12 seconds to 8 seconds since 2000. Okay, I mean, these are just numbers, right? But the, the article says the attention span of a goldfish is 9 seconds. Okay, so that's just, I mean, I don't know how they know all this, okay, but a more serious, a more serious um, article, research done by the University of Chicago, um, that asked the question, okay, do our smartphones affect us even when we are not interacting with them, just when they are simply nearby? Okay, so they did this research, and uh, participants were set various mental challenges, and some were asked to put the phone in front of them, face down, Okay, so the screen not even up. Some had the phones in their pocket. Some had the phones in another room. Okay, and all the phones were put on airplane mode. Now, the participants who had the phones in the other room performed better, performed best. The group that performed uh, least were the ones who had it right in front of them. Even though it was turned off, even though there were no notifications. Okay, it was striking. Now, even when the phone is not just on airplane mode, but when it is turned off, the participants who had it in front of them showed a loss of cognitive ability as if they had gone without sleep the night before. So the the report says, the mere presence of our smartphones can adversely affect our ability to think and problem solve, even when we are not using them, even when we are not looking at them, even when they are powered off. So why is it that the mere presence of the phone is so damaging to our cognitive ability? The research shows that because the phone, just having it there where we can see it, it is constantly calling out to us. Like it knows our name, right? Like my phone, right? Siri, I program it to call me Your Grace. You know, so Your Grace. Uh, the weather today is, you know, so it's, it's constantly calling out to us. And it calls out to us in a way that there's always, uh, you know, something that we can check, something that we can look at. So it's calling out to us. And so our brains, in order to focus on the task, in order to fight the temptation of checking our email, checking Facebook, by using that brain energy to fight that temptation... It's already causing us to be able to concentrate less and think less deeply. So let me just apply it here, right? So during the sermon, when you're holding the phone, it's not just in front of you, and some of you don't even turn it to airplane mode. Obviously, it's not powered off. Right? When the sermon gets a bit boring or when you know, the passage becomes a bit challenging, you know, you should require to think a bit harder to understand this point, then that Having that phone nearby is going to make it all the more harder to engage. And the temptation is there to just Google something, check something. You know, uh, I'm just just checking what the, the speaker is saying and then you go to the phone. Hopefully the day will come when having our phones during service in church, uh, will be like smoking on the airplane. You know, in the past, some of you are old enough to remember that there was a time when the planes had a smoking section and a non-smoking section. 
I mean, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it is one, um, con- you know, uh, one one space. There's, there's no there's no windows and everything, and you can have a smoking section and a non-smoking section. It's ridiculous. Now, hopefully, the day will come when having our phones and you know uh, having it turned on where we can access. Uh, social media during church in service when we are gathered with God's people around God's word it will be as ridiculous as that but if you think about it it is right it is having it here so we need to put it away we need to put it out of sight uh, when we are reading our Bibles when we are praying when we are listening to God's word because it does adversely affect our ability to think and to concentrate Uh, there's also a risk there's also a danger to our ability to to read. With so much info available at our fingertips, websites, news feeds, we have had to develop the ability to skim read. We've become scanners, right? Quickly scan the information. It is a necessary skill. Uh, we need to evaluate vast amounts of information online. Now, the thing to realize is that this increase in skim reading, okay, um, versus reading deeply you know, slowly, trying to digest it. Okay, this increase in skim reading did not just happen. Okay, Uh, Tim Charles says in his book that Google has a vested interest to encourage a culture of skim reading. Why? Because Google makes money by selling advertisements. So it is in Google's best interest to have you see as many of these ads as possible. Right, I quote, they have nothing to gain and dollars to lose if you choose to remain on a single page for an extended period of time. Uh, another researcher puts it this way. Okay, you and I need to remember that out there are technology companies that are employing people with 17 PhDs in human attention. Right, 17 PhDs in human attention and all kinds of computer degrees. And their entire job is to get your eyes on your phone as often as possible in order to sell you ads. Right, someone has said, uh, you are not the consumers of uh, Facebook. You are the product. The customers are the advertisers. So there are a lot of forces pushing us in one direction. Right, to, to make skim reading the dominant way, uh, dominant way that we read, instead of deep, slow, engaged reading. Now, what is the, the implication of this? Well, let me illustrate by telling you that recently I've taken up running. Okay, I enjoy running now, I used to hate it. And there's, a, there's so much that I never realized about running. Okay, but running, that you can, you can run... Um, you can run fast or you can train yourself to run long distance. So at the moment, I am training to run uh, 2.4 in under 10 minutes. Okay, I've never done that in my life. I'm 42 years old, but I'm going to run 2.4 in under 10 minutes. And that requires training. Okay? So it's, it's a different sort of training uh, from training for a marathon, which is long distance. The training is different. You cannot do both at the same time. So if you want to have your mind trained, to read long passages, to read whole books, you have got to do that. 
But if you want to train your mind to read lots of little disconnected bits, then you've got to do that a lot. It is very hard to do both. And the reality is that the Bible comes to us in whole books. Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. So that we can see for ourselves what Paul says here in verse 9 and 10. So the Bible comes to us in whole books. And it's important that we train our minds to read long passages, to read whole books. Uh, Paul says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Okay, What is it that Paul continually prays for the Colossians? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. Okay, let me just stop there. So how do we go, how do we grow, how do we increase in maturity, how do we live lives increasingly that are worthy of the Lord, that please Him in every way. We need to be filled with the knowledge of His will. We need to be filled with the truth of this book. And so if we are training our minds in a way that makes it hard for us to access this book, then we will not be able to fill our minds with the knowledge of of truths, of life-changing truths that will allow us to live lives that are worthy of God. Right, I mean, Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. But if we have trained ourselves and we are training the next generation not to know how to turn on the lamp, then how can that word light our feet and be a light for our path? There is a risk, there's a danger affecting our reading. Now, not just uh, a risk and a danger to our spiritual health, But uh, digital technology also poses uh, a risk to our physical and our mental health. Now, screen technology adversely affects our health by shortening, by interrupting our sleep. Now, instead of the deep sleep that we need, it causes us to have more shallow sleep. Now, how many of you, the last thing you do before you sleep, is you look at your phone. First thing you do when you wake up is you look at your phone. You don't need to raise your hands far more than we imagine uh, actually do that. Now, research has shown that the children who use a media device right before bed more likely to sleep less than they should, more likely to sleep poorly, and more likely to be sleepy during the day. And the whole issue of being deprived of sleep It's a serious health issue. It leads to uh, compromised thinking. Uh, You're more susceptible to illness, gain weight, high blood pressure, depression, and anxiety. Digital technology is also affecting our mental health. Uh, David Murray says, The constant beeps, buzzes, and updates reduce the undisturbed time for the brain to rest. You know, TV and radio, you know, we, we, we were watching it. But at least those were confined to, you know, the living room. But with the internet, having it at our fingertips, 
we never even get a few minutes while queuing to give our brains a chance to rest. No, but we turn to the smartphone to fill up even those few minutes. A uh, report has said that the teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy compared to those who spend more time on average on non-screen activities, you know, like playing board games, exercising, you know, actually hanging out with friends at the mall physically. See, there's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness and all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. Another report says, while iGens may be physically safe. Uh, what's an iGen? iGen is someone who is born after 1995. It's a generation that grew up with smartphones. Okay? They may be physically safe, but their emotional and mental selves are often a mess. Today's teens are more depressed, more prone to bullying and being bullied, and more likely to commit suicide. They often struggle with a FOMO. What's FOMO? It's the fear of missing out. And a, 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 a fear of missing out that is so intense it affects their psychological well-being, affects the decisions they make and the friendships they form. They struggle with body image and confidence. They struggle to foster healthy, wholesome friendships and romance. I mean, just based on these two quotes, you want your teenagers, your niece, nephews, your children to be happier. The thing to do is just to put down the phone. Turn off the computer and go and do something that's not screen related. That will make them happier. And parents, so much we need to uh, do and to implement in in this area. Uh, Another risk is how technology is endangering our self-identity. Tony Ranke in his book, 12 Ways Our Smartphones Are Changing Us, uh, says in his book, meet Jasmine. Okay, Jasmine is a twenty-something woman aspiring to Instagram fame. Okay, some of you know what I'm talking about. Okay, and she spoke out, but only under an alias because she was still in the game and she was too embarrassed to admit it. Okay, so the identity that she projected was costly. Okay, so in case some of you don't know, so Instagram. Is this social media thing where you post pictures of yourself or things that you do. And then when people like the pictures that you post, uh, they will follow you. And so some people are trying to be famous on Instagram. You know, try and chalk up like thousands and thousands of followers. And I think the reason they want to do this is so that, uh, so let's say your, your niche is, you know, exercise. So you've got thousands and thousands of followers then companies may endorse you. They may give you freebies so that you can post it on Instagram and then, you know, as advertisements. Or if you're into makeup and then, you know, uh, Face Shop will, will send you free products, this and that. Okay, so that's why people want to be Instagram famous. So she says that she, the identity that she projected was costly and she found herself drowning in credit card debt. I buy a lot of things to maintain my image, she said. I pay for meals out, new swimsuits. I never photograph the same one twice. Uh, I buy beautiful printed dresses nearly once a week, fresh flowers religiously once a week, etc. I spend money 
to make my life look a certain way. And I get a rush from looking that way. But my credit cards do not share my enthusiasm. Her 3,400 credit card debt was mounting. She couldn't pay it off and she couldn't stop the compulsive buying. As I'm writing this, she says, I'm eating the sushi I bought on my way home, photographed 50 times, posted, and I've got 231 likes so far. Now, I, I know that none of us are this extreme. You know, but some of us, by following and liking these people on Instagram, we are actually endorsing and supporting such behavior. Now, there are many, many, many more risks and dangers. Right? I haven't even talked about how violent computer games and uh, what it does to our brains. Okay? I haven't talked about how it affects our relationships. I was, I was talking to one student giving him the hard word, okay? correcting him, rebuking him. And then he took out his handphone. I thought he needed to send an urgent text or something. Then I looked over. He was playing a game as I was talking to him. Okay, and then I've noticed you know, couples on the bus, you know, the girlfriend is talking, and then the guy is you know, uh, having a conversation with the girlfriend, but he's also looking at uh, Instagram, you know, just scrolling through, you know, scroll, scroll, pom pom, scroll, scroll, pom pom, right? You know what I means. Uh, I mean, they like the photo, okay? So, and then as they're talking, okay, I think I think the thing that we need to do with our friends, uh, and you know, with our spouses, is to make it clear that it is unacceptable behavior, right? We cannot allow this to go on. We cannot tolerate someone looking at their phones while pretending to have a conversation with us. Okay, if it's your uh, family member, friend, especially if it's your children, uh, especially if it's your spouse, there needs to be eyeball-to-eyeball contact. We need to put the phone down. We need to engage with real people. Okay? Uh, so many, many more risks and dangers we can go into. Uh, but the third point, what do we do with all this? We need more digital Okay, don't read wrongly. It's not digital technology. Okay, it's actually digital theology. Okay, not more digital technology. Yes, in a sense, we need more digital, some more digital technology can help, right? You can use apps, you can use uh, websites that uh, filter out content, uh, apps that, okay, so, you know, Elliot has um, an app installed on his phone where Maria controls the amount of time he can spend on the phone. So once his uh, three hours is up for that day, the phone just becomes a paperweight. Okay, so uh, you can use more technology to help us. Okay, but ultimately what we need more is digital theology, meaning that we must allow the Bible to guide us. So the question we must ask ourselves is, do you believe that this book, this ancient book, the most recent part of this is already 2,000 years old. Do you believe that this book has something to say for how we live, for how we should navigate this technological age? We'll turn back to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this, this present age. So are we allowing the grace of God that has appeared, the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at the heart of this book, are we allowing it to teach us what we should say no to? Are we allowing it to speak into how we use technology so that we can live lives that are uh, upright, that are self-controlled, that are godly? We need more digital theology. So that when we study Matthew, when we heard about rest last week, when we, when we study Ecclesiastes next, I mean, the question that we need to ask is, you know, not just those you know, standard stock application but we need to discuss and, and help each other to probe deeply. What does this have to say about how we use our computers, how we use our smartphones? What we learn from the Bible, we need to think together for what it should say about our, our use of technology. Now I want to uh, share with you David Murray's five tips. Okay, you, can, you can find all this on his website, but he's got five tips. And his first tip is to meet with God first and alone. Which means turn off your phone, avoid the computer before personal devotions. Right, it is absolutely vital that you meet with God before anyone else in a day. Right, before checking your Facebook feed, before seeing how many uh, likes your last Instagram post got. I mean, it is vital that we meet with God first. We need to keep our minds free of digital distractions. Because it will come in, it will distract us. And, and the sad truth is, because the, the distractions are, are so ubiquitous, we don't even have time to mourn. We don't even have time to mourn our sin. When we know we have sinned, when we know we have transgressed, and as our heart is beginning to, 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 to feel the remorse and to feel the weight of our sin, something on our phone or something on our devices will distract us. So that we don't even have time to mourn and think about how we have transgressed and how we have sinned against the Lord. We need to have the discipline to be free from digital distraction. So that's the first point. Meet with God first. Meet with God first and alone. His second tip is to use a physical Bible. Okay, that means this. Okay, if you can't remember what it looks like. Okay, this physical Bible. Um, and uh, you know, why not? Why not use a phone? Right, I've got my phone. What if I just turn into airplane mode? Why can't I use a phone? Well, his reasons for uh, why not is because uh, it, it does offer an avenue for distraction. Okay, yes, it's on airplane mode, but you can very easily turn it back on. Uh, so you may be distracted before you read the Bible. You may want to turn it to airplane mode, but then when you pick it up, oh, you know, there's some notifications, and then you, you find yourself reading it before you... Hey, what did I pick up the phone for? You can't even remember, but actually it was to read the Bible, right? So it might make you distracted before reading the Bible. It may, might make you distracted while reading the Bible. Okay, so that's uh, the reason. Second reason for why we should use a physical Bible is because of anticipation. So even if we don't get any distraction while reading the Bible on our device, the mere possibility 
of getting a notification. The possibility of being able to click onto something else changes the way that we read and think. Right, as we've already said, just by having the phone nearby already affects our concentration, uh, affects uh, our attention span. The third reason that he gives is association. The brain associates objects, events, smells with certain activities. So if we study in the same place every day, if we sit in the chair, the same chair, the brain already goes into study mode. Uh, the pattern of activity in the brain changes. And our brain associates our phones with skim reading, with surfing, with scanning, with entertainment, and maybe even worse things. Right? That's no mindset to be in to commune with God. And studies have shown that the brain reacts differently to reading a paper book uh, compared to a book on multimedia device. So that's just some of his reasons. Uh, I mean, none of these are you know, rules that we must follow, then we are good Christians. Uh, but if the wisdom works for you, try it out. And, uh, so that's the second point, use a physical Bible. Uh, his third tip is to use the free moments to pray. Okay, so you, know, you find yourself waiting in queue, waiting for the bus, instead of instinctively reaching for the phone to fill up that time. You know, I don't like waiting in line. But use up those free moments to pray to uh, think about, okay, who did I promise in a week that I will pray for? And then to pray for that person. His fourth tip is to take a weekly digital Sabbath. He says Sunday is the ideal day to come apart from all the din and drama of the internet, social media, and set your heart and minds on things above. It will surprise you how little you miss, how little you are missed, and how much you will gain. So maybe set aside a time each day or one day during the week to, you know, to be completely offline. His uh, fifth tip is to memorize scripture. He says, think how much scripture you could memorize in a year if you even just halved the number of times you check your email and social media. Okay, the point is, whatever ways helps, whatever ways that will help us to deepen our relationship with God will also help to wean off our dependence and our bad habits with technology and help us to use it in a way that will glorify Him. Now, Tony Ranke says that uh, as he was finishing research for his book, uh, 12 Ways Our Smartphone Changes, he went to John Piper and asked him, how does he use technology to fulfill the purpose and calling of his life? So he went to John Piper, and John Piper, he was quick. He was quick to gush. You know, he was gush. He was, oh, 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 all these apps, all this Bible software, you know, how they have helped him, how they have fed his soul over all these years. And then at the end of the conversation, he looked down. Okay, I mean, imagine he was sitting at his desk. He looked down, and his laptop was there, his iPad was there, his iPhone was there, all sitting on the table, and he said, okay, John Piper's words, I could almost come to tears over how precious they are to me. Yes, they are glowing tools made mostly by men and women who are not submitted to God. And yes, they are tools that open up his life to a thousand potential temptations. But used with care, the digital tools are 
a treasure chest of the glories of God. I want to be like that. I want to see this as good gifts so that I can use it as a way, as tools, you know, having the, the, the information at my fingertips that, you know, that, that, that our, our brothers and sisters, you know, a hundred years ago did not have. But to use it in a way to help me in my pursuit of God. To help me to grow and deepen my knowledge and relationship with God. And not to just unthinkingly like the rest of the world. Use it and, and not even realize that it is uh, getting me further and further away from God. So the end is not just knowing more digital theology for the sake of knowing more theology. The end is not deeper theology for the sake of deeper theology. The, the, the deeper theology is to lead us to a deeper relationship with God. And the deeper and healthier our relationship with God, the more Christian and healthier will be our use of technology. I want to end by getting us to look at one verse in Revelation 22, our responsive reading. The whole pursuit, using these tools, the whole pursuit of our lives, should be to know God more deeply. And I want to say that as Christians, this is not a pursuit that is in vain. Because the picture in Revelation that God gives promises us. Uh, in chapter 22, verse 4, we will be in the presence of God and talking about uh, His people, His servants. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. The day will come when we will see his face. Because the presence of God will be unmediated, unshielded. We will be living and dwelling in God's presence. And, and, when, and when John says we will see his face, it does not mean that the light that is coming out from God, okay, the, the light waves or particles, you know, whatever it is, maybe we'll know the answer back there, over there. But the, 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 the light will come from God. Okay? It will go through our, our pupil. It will hit our retina. And the light receptors okay, will, will, you know, will take all this and then send information to our brain. Okay? When, when John says we will see his face, he's not just talking about the physical act of seeing something. But what John means here that we will know God and know him so deeply that what he is, all that he is, who he is, will satisfy us. That we will be content. We will be filled. We will be fulfilled because we will see his face. We will so know him that it satisfies us. This is what is promised for the people of God. And so now, here, until that day happens, our pursuit of God, and our use of technology wisely and faithfully to that task for that pursuit is one that is not done in vain because the Bible promises, God promises us, one day we will see his face. We will be so contented and satisfied by the God who loves us and saved us. And may that God help us to use his good gifts
to honor him. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.